1: Welcome to the 208th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Debbie Freeman. Debbie is a partner with Peak Financial Advisors, an independent RIA based in Denver, Colorado, that oversees $175 million of assets under management for 105 client families. What's unique about Debbie, though, is the way her firm does not only tax planning for their clients, but in-house tax preparation, a service for which they charge separately, but view as an essential component to both add value to clients And better retain them with the firm. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Debbie and her firm actually handle operating a tax preparation business within their wealth management firm. The cumulative amount of staffing hours it takes to collect and input data, prepare the return, review the return, and file the return. How the seasonality of tax preparation with April 15th and October 15th deadlines forces the firm to engage in meeting surges during the off months for their non tax planning regular review meetings with clients why Peak Financial has decided to keep its tax preparation in-house and not work externally with other CPAs, and how the real return on tax preparation for clients may not just be the additional 5% of revenue it generates, but the additional 5% increase in retention rates it provides for Peak's core advisory business. We also talk about Debbie's own journey through the financial services industry, how she started out at a big four accounting firm, but quickly realized that she didn't enjoy traditional accounting work the way she proactively reached out about a potential opening at a local advisory firm to find her first planning job, the stresses that Debbie faced in her early career in trying to prove her worth to the firm when she wasn't in a revenue generation role, and the change in mindset that came after Debbie took her first maternity leave that ultimately helped her contribute to her becoming a partner in the firm. And be certain to listen to the end, where Debbie shares how different the mentality really is when you go from an employee to an owner of an advisory firm, how seemingly Black and white planning strategies for clients take on shades of gray as we get more experience in our careers and better appreciate the human nuances, and the way challenges in our personal lives and sometimes personal tragedies can alter our career trajectories in ways that turn out positive. And so, with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Debbie Freeman. welcome debbie Freeman to the financial advisor success podcast
2: thank you so much i'm really honored to be here with you today
1: i'm looking forward to the discussion on today's episode and and what i'm finding is is kind of cropping up more and more often as a a theme in discussions in our in our advisor community right now which is you know all of these various pressures on on our fees and and our value proposition you know i've i've been one who's Kind of pounded the table for a while that said we're we're not really experiencing fee compression because frankly we we can't run at robo advisor fees with like we're not going to we don't have the technology we don't have the scale and we don't have a hundred million dollars of other people's money to to build all of that technology like the only way we survive is we have to we have to make sure our value steps up to justify the fees that we do charge and that the most dominant discussion I I feel like I'm seeing these days is not. You know, hey, are you cutting your fees down to compete with Robo Advisors? It's more of, hey, like, what are you doing to try to make sure that you can get the full value of the fees that you're charging, right? And we're getting into more services and other services, like concierge services, and value adds, and all these different things that advisory firms are trying to put in to to validate the fees that they charge. And and one that I'm hearing more and more is a lot of us have always done tax planning. As, as a part of what we do. You know so much of our advice, whether it's uh, investments or insurance or other areas have always had tax intersections to it. but getting even more proactive on tax planning and, and in some cases outright doing tax preparation, like doing tax returns, uh, becoming a CPA, hiring a CPA, becoming an enrolled agent, insourcing and outsourcing it, like lots of different ways that you can go about it. But I know you live a firm that does tax returns for clients as a core part of what you do and and, and are a CPA yourself. And so I'm really interested just to talk about this dynamic of, of what's it like to be in an advisory practice that's doing tax returns and doing all this tax work for clients and and not necessarily an environment. I mean, I've seen a few firms that do this that are like, the big mega firms, it's like, oh yeah, we're going to do tax returns for our clients. We'll just hire twelve CPAs and they'll do that stuff. But you know, you're you're in a you're in a much smaller practice. You don't get like you know dozens of people that you get to hire to do this stuff. Like you all have to do it yourselves and just live with that balance of gotta manage portfolios and give clients advice and do financial plans. Oh, and there's this tax season thing. And so I'm just I'm really excited to talk about like what what is life like. In in a practice where you're doing you know financial planning and investment management and and tax returns in particularly what was a crazy year because they kept changing the due date for the tax returns. So you didn't even know when you were done. So what what does this look like to have like a tax season cycle within an advisory firm as a part of what you're doing for clients?
2: Well, we have had this structure since the firm began in 1997, and I have been part of the practice since 2005. And I can tell you that it continues to get more complex, and the tax seasons seem to get longer And it really segments your year. And it's important to understand that if you go this route where you're actually not only doing tax planning, but you're doing the preparation too, that you understand the flow of your entire practice is probably going to change. You know, things like we absolutely block out our calendar from February 15th through April 15th, where we are not holding annual review meetings uh, you know with clients those traditional annual reviews are done for our firm after the October 15th deadline so we are often the month of November and December and into January is really when we're meeting with clients face to face, doing the comprehensive review of their investments, their financial planning, looking forward to what kind of tax planning we have to do for the next deadline or the next year. And really, February, March, April, and September and October is strictly related to taxes. And We're meeting with clients and we're engaging with them and and having conversations, getting the returns done and filed, but that is probably one of the biggest shifts that I think some advisors might overlook is that it really segments your year in terms of the flow of the
1: work. Interesting. Now, I mean, the irony to me of this is I feel like we're hearing this starting to come up as... A practice management thing in general to say, hey, instead of having all of your client meetings sort of dispersed throughout the year, you know, couple of week all year long to get through the the few hundred meetings a year we often have, to say instead, hey, what what would it look like if we did if we did these meetings in in chunks, like you know, we have a month or two where we do three, four, five meetings a day every day on end, we go through the whole client base and like a seasonal review of some planning issue, get through all of them, and then we're kind of done for two or three months before we've got to go through and, and do the next round of meeting. I know some people are calling these meeting surges. So I know for some of us are starting to experiment with meeting surges just as a a time efficiency thing unto itself. It's sort of like time blocking writ large across your you know whole one or two month segments of your calendar. And just it strikes me as you're describing this that you're you're essentially ending out in a ver- version of meeting surges as well, but sort of done of necessity because mid-February, mid-April, and then September into mid-October get oh, just knocked out because of tax season, tax filing deadlines. So you end up being forced to do meeting surges around the rest just to be able to accommodate the, the tax preparation surges that naturally tie to the tax calendar when you run this sort of structure.
2: Absolutely. And our meeting surges tend to be, you know, May, June will be the the next surge of client meetings when we, we pick up some of those clients that are used to planning in the in the spring summer months. That one is less heavy. And then the the big push is the November, December, January time frame. And that has built-in efficiencies as well. You know, when we're talking what our macro view is uh, of the markets and the world, you know, it's much more efficient to have that in a 3-month time frame than having to update that part of our presentation, you know, four times a year. And so, and our clients get used to the schedule and they're obviously being touched and and reviewed and and having discussions with us multiple times through the year, especially if they're a tax planning client, but it's really great to kind of end the year and know we're hitting that next tax season, understanding that they they have an understanding of what to expect when we file. We have an understanding of what has gone on during the year and it gives us time to maybe Fix any issues that arise.
1: Now, I'm I'm curious as well that you said like having done this for 15 years in the firm. I guess 20 plus years of the firm's been around. 15 plus years that you you've been in the firm doing this. You made this comment like it continues to get more complex. I'm just curious about that because I feel like the general thrust of tax preparation is like every year the tools and the software get like fancier and more capable. So like being an outsider, I have to admit, I sort of would have assumed like, well, this is getting pretty simple now, right? Like, I mean, I can, I can turbo tax my return in in an hour online if it's not too horribly messy. A lot of my clients are not that bad, as long as I don't have maybe small business owner clients, with a whole bunch of business entities. So like, why is it that it's getting more complex, even as the technology ostensibly gets better every year at, at supporting tax preparation work?
2: Yeah. And I agree with that. Uh, The technology and the software is there to make our lives much easier. What, what, Adds to the complexity is our convoluted tax code. You know, the, the constant band-aiding of different provisions within the tax code, adding layers, staying up to date on that. I mean, the Paycheck Protection Program is a perfect example, as you know, what has gone on with even understanding those rules this week. So a lot of the complexity comes from being able to stay up to date and functional on the different provisions and the changes that are constantly happening. And then as our clients' financial situations become more complex, they need more higher-level tax planning. They need more of our time to understand what kind of options they have. Anytime we go through a a major tax reform, we we spend... An enormous amount of time uh, educating our clients on what those changes are and how it specifically applies to them, and so it's really def- it really comes from an amount of time needed to. Provide that service in the highest way possible by keeping up on all of the changes to the tax code and ensuring that you're able to apply those principles to the clients that need them.
1: So out of curiosity, then, it, it I guess it sounds like it's less that literally tax preparation is getting more complex and, and convoluted, but just the tax planning that has to happen because we change our rules on a regular basis gets more complex and more convoluted. And when you're doing, and I guess a lot of us say we do tax planning, but when you're actually preparing the client's tax return, you you may end out in a little bit deeper level of tax planning than what a lot of us do because we may only do quote-unquote tax planning on investment-related stuff because we manage their portfolio or insurance-related stuff because we recommend some insurance and annuity strategies. But if you are preparing their tax return, like everything's on the table. You know, are, are you analyzing their kitty tax situations? Are you analyzing their deductions and claiming strategies? Any possible election on the return is something you've got to actually help them decide on whether to elect or not. And you just end out with a deeper level of planning, perhaps, because you're you're on every single page of the tax return, not just the few tax planning items that a lot of us are involved when in, like not to belittle the significance of the tax planning areas we hit but like we usually don't hit everything and i'm imagining you you do you have to cuz you're you're preparing the whole tax return
2: it's expected yeah if they're hiring a firm of CPAs and CFPs <laughs> they're expecting a very high level of service on the tax planning and preparation side and you know better than anyone that there's no hiding once you have a client's 1040 you can pretty much understand and get a roadmap of their entire financial picture. And that Adds to the planning. So even if you aren't managing a component of their net worth, or you understand that they have a, a Roth four hundred one k, it adds another layer of planning to that. You know, what's your asset allocation in that in that Roth four hundred one k? What are you doing with all of this cash earning nothing? You know, what what makes you not sleep well at night if you don't have that much cash in in the bank? You know, so it it unravels so many different layers of planning. It's it's kind of like a big puzzle and part of the reason why this career was was made for someone like me. You know, I get I get to use the analytical side, the CPA in me gets to dig deep and 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 find those layers and and put the puzzle together. And then the the people side of me still gets to have that engagement and have those deeper conversations and being a CPA and being very much involved in their tax life makes it that much easier and that much more engaging to be part of their entire financial picture.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've always been fascinated just about how much stuff you actually get to glean when you when you really go through someone's tax return in full. You know, we just launched a a, a course even on the Kids's platform, like how to actually walk through a client's tax return and just just. Spot all the stuff that that comes from it, right? You know, you you get to a schedule B and you start looking at interest. Like, well, you know, they've said they don't have a lot of dollars out there, but I'm looking at this this interest line, and there's a couple thousand dollars of interest. And hey, you know, actually, given how low interest rates are, like if they've got several thousand dollars of interest at in these rates, like there are hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> in a in a bank account or a, or bonds somewhere, like that's a bit, a big number. And you just, you start finding and and seeing other things, you know, oh, they say there's no other assets, but like there's a K-1 from a trust. So who's the trust from and where did that come from? And just all sorts of additional things that you find and get to see when, when you, when you, I guess not only have the tax return, cause we, often routinely asked for one at a lot of advisory firms, but when you know how to walk through it, when you actually know what sorts of things to look for, to to spot additional planning opportunities, or maybe things that like clients are hiding that are opportunities to to advise them on or work with them on, as well as just your additional opportunities to get deeper in value to clients, because you see more. There's more opportunities to plan. I guess as you noted, like bad news, it gets a little more complex and convoluted and takes more time. But good news, you get more opportunities to add value. And 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 I've always been struck. It's it's perhaps part of my own bias as to why I'm I'm a big fan of getting pretty deep on on tax planning with clients. That just there's nothing like finding a tax. Planning strategy that works and, and being like, I know a lot of what we do is sort of fuzzy and ephemeral on the value. Like, do retirement planning with me. Trust me, you'll be really thankful in, in 20 or 30 years from now. But there's nothing like, oh, and by the way, I saved you $2,722. Like, it's right here on this line. <laughs> I did, I brought that to you and you saved $2,722. Now, how, how, are, how are you feeling about our working relationship? There's a concreteness to, here are the hard dollars in taxes that you won't have to pay thanks to our work together.
2: Yes, and going back to the class that you're launching, I got an email on that, and I think it's an excellent idea. It's that is the first place I would push an advisor that's thinking about doing this. You know, you don't have to be a CPA to implement this in your practice. You can you can become an enrolled agent. agent. There's other ways of uh, outsourcing, but. I would encourage an advisor thinking about doing something like this to to do a class like that and really understand what kind of data mining is available in a client's tax return and see if if that's the the kind of if if it engages you tax work. Can be a grind, and you do not want to set yourself up for something that you don't enjoy. So, you know, that's a really good way to see if you think that it's part of your practice that you want to implement is to really dig into it yourself and see if you're interested, engaged in it, and then go to the next level of of deciding to offer it to clients. I have seen advisors kind of jump into this pool prematurely and they. They really flounder if they don't like it, or they take on too much work in the first one or two years, and then they're scrambling to find um, someone to help them. You know, they're they're scrambling for outsourcing, and so it's just a part of the practice that can add so much to the relationship with clients if done properly. But I would caution that you're really ready (laughs) before you launch it to the world because it is it is a function of time.
1: So so can you talk about that a little bit more of, of just what does this really look like in practice if you're if you're preparing clients tax returns like you know if if i'm the client and i'm i'm engaged with the firm and you're doing tax preparation work for me as a part of the overall offering like like what is the process that you guys actually go through in working with me to do tax preparation this year. Like what what do you actually do and have to get from me and do step by step? What does that look like?
2: Well, the first step is we request at least 2 years of of prior tax returns. And I am digging through page by page on those to create a list of questions to discuss to discuss at our next meeting. You really need to understand any sort of carry forwards anything that has gone on that the client may have forgotten about you know a, a k1 from a private investment that's really where i'm getting i'm i'm painting that that tax picture you know in my mind and in their record of all the moving pieces of their tax return and then we get together and discuss what questions i might have what these underlying accounts are what these private investments are is charitable giving you know a constant are there strategies around lumping our deductions so one year we're taking itemized deductions the next year we're taking the standard it's really we're digging deep into that you know strategy session fast forward to actual actual filing time the client is Typically electronically providing the documents to us, we make it a point to try to turn.
1: And so, and so, how do you actually do that? That that document collection when it's when it's time is this? Yeah, is this like you? send them a vault that they upload to, you have them email stuff over, like how does this actually work?
2: We use a Citrix uh, share file so they can send everything securely. I have tried many of the like data harvesters, they import the data, they import your W2, they import your 1099. And every year I'm disappointed because it it's very easy on a on a fuzzy copy of a w2 for that software to read an 8 as a 3 you know and and those are the quickest way to generate a tax notice
1: so even for the tools out there that are are like scanning client documents to figure this out it's not that they're necessarily like getting a direct feed from the irs of here's all the all the 1099s and w2s that have been reported the software is just literally like taking the documents because they are at least a standardized tax form and just like scanning the document and trying to do optical character recognition to figure out the numbers that are there with with the caveat that if someone had a lousy printer you, your client gets a tax notice
2: exactly and so i feel very old school in in this part of my practice but we are still physically you know entering in the majority of those documents. Now we have feeds directly from major custodians where you can import Schedule D information, You know, which can be some of the most time-consuming data entry if you were to actually put all of their trades into it in a tax software. So we've got those kind of imports, but we are blazing on a 10 key and it saves me time to quickly look at a clients two W-2s and get those into my tech software as opposed to have it scanned in by one of these OCR software programs. And then I still have to review it with an eagle eye to ensure that, you know, the numbers are correct.
1: Right. There there comes a point if you're going to do a manual spot check review anyways of all these, it basically takes you as long to manually spot check it. As it does to just enter it, right? Like by the time you pull up the form, pull up the right section of the re- of the return or the or the software, look at the number on the form, look at the number on the turn to like actually have your candle on the keyboard and and key in that, you know, four, five, six-digit number, like that takes a half a second. The time was pulling the form, finding the number, pulling the tax return software, finding it in there, and figuring out if they're gonna match it. So if you take all of the time to do that, like then you may as well just key it while you're key there. Key it
2: in. Yeah, exactly. And so once the data is keyed in and it's gone through our review process, we let the client know that the tax return's ready. At that point, we, unless they request otherwise, we try to do everything paperless. They receive a copy of their tax returns, their summary letter, explanations on the next steps, they e they we e file absolutely every return that we can. They sign their e file authorizations and get those back to us typically via email, and we get we get the e file turned around right away. So once we get through the initial data entry component, the rest of the process is pretty paperless.
1: And so, so you like you get the data from clients, right? they I guess they put it all up into a Citrix share file folder. So there'll be a bunch of W-2s, a bunch of 1099s, maybe you were able to import the Schedule D information directly from the, from the investment platform. So how long does it take just to get data into the software? I mean, like, is that a... 50 or 20 minutes once you've got everything there and you just have to key things in or is that still like no it takes an hour or two because there's a lot of items it, de- <laughs> it
2: depends on the client and the complexity. You know, I would say a, a standard tax return that we are working on the entry of those basic documents takes 30 to 60 minutes. What often then takes a ton of time is K1 entries Understanding state filing requirements oftentimes from those K 1s. So many of my clients, you know, have a Schedule C because they're self employed or they have a consulting business on the side, they have a rental property. So you start adding those layers of complexity. You know, I'm typically not cranking out tax returns that are just two W 2s and it's on their way.
1: And so, what you said, once you get all the data in there, there's a review process. So, can you explain what the review process is and how that works for advisors that haven't lived in in accounting world with tax reviews?
2: Sure. So, let me start off by saying there are three people in my firm, two advisors and one um, admin. And So the the majority of tax season is falling on my shoulders. The other advisor in the office, we manage everything as a team. And Brian, the founder, is really focused on investment management. He's our our CIO. So the financial planning and the tax practices is is really my baby. Our admin does a great job of helping me with tax season on the data entry and getting clients their their documents and ensuring that we have e-file authorizations But a lot of times I'm doing the return and I'm also responsible for reviewing that return. And, you know, in any sort of large accounting firm environment, you've got someone preparing and you might have one or two or sometimes even three other people reviewing that work as it goes up the chain. And so something that I have really had to navigate is how do I complete the return, and then kind of clear the cash <laughs> from my brain of what work I have done and how do I review it objectively and, and do it again. And the way that I have found it works best is when I finish a tax return, let's say I finish a tax return on a Wednesday, even if I'm done with that tax return at you know 10 a.m. Wednesday morning... I'm not looking at that return again until the next day. I will go on and and work on other tax returns because I need to clear the my mindset. You know, I need to look at this person's tax situation with a fresh set of eyes, without all of the work I've just completed in it. I then have a checklist of all of these items that I've gathered over the years of uh, potential mistakes, things you forget when you're preparing a comprehensive tax return like that there's so many areas that you need to think about that going in without a checklist is pretty haphazard <laughs> you're you're definitely probably going to miss something especially when you're under pressure and you're busy and so that you know that 24-hour reset is really important so i can then look at the return as a reviewer and and kind of try to critique my own work as to What could I have possibly missed? What am I not thinking about? How does this look compared to prior year's returns? You know, all of that is part of a very comprehensive review process.
1: So, a larger firm might actually have multiple people that are doing this. Like Debbie's review, Debbie's prepared the return, but Bob's going to come in and just what basically go line by line through it and compare. I guess it's like, what are they literally doing in in the review? Is this like I'm then going to pull up all the clients' W twos and K one to and make sure that you keyed them in properly. I'm going to pull in the prior year returns. I'm like, am I spot checking the math? Because I'm kind of presuming the planning software or the tax software does the math. Like, what what am I actually reviewing?
2: So, you know, in a traditional accounting firm, you're going to have staff who are preparing the returns and they're entering all the data. They're Looking at it compared to prior years, and and they're submitting work that they think is is a, a completed tax return with some you know open items. A senior is then going to take that return and review it for completeness. They're gonna they're gonna look at the the data entry and and quickly look at those W-2 numbers. They're going to check prior year's returns and make sure that we're not missing a 1099. They're going to review notes from prior year's meetings or current year's meetings to see maybe what was added or what kind of information we'd gotten from that client in the current year. Then you're going to have a manager or a senior manager looking at those returns as well. And finally, you're going to have those signed, you know, either by a manager, senior manager or a partner depending on the complexity of the return. So, that is one thing that, you know, accounting firms have done well is they've they've separated those duties. And as you go up that scale, obviously the hourly the hourly rate goes up. And so they staff build at this much and then managers build at a much higher rate, the staff, you know, the majority of the preparation is falling on that staff level.
1: So how long does a review process take for a a typical client? If, you know, sort of the raw data entry might be 30 to 60 minutes, assuming they're not a Terribly complex situation. I realize there's probably a long tail of complexity on that for some really messy clients. Like, how long does it take then to go through the review process? Is this still at the end of the day just kind of takes me ten minutes to sort of hit my checklist and spot uh, spot check items and go through, or is this like a whole other hour or more of reviewing?
2: It's a it's an hour or more of reviewing. I mean, you're going through every every you have to be able to justify every number on that tax return. And so it's it's a very in-depth review and depending on the complexity of the client it can take hours. If you're looking at a federal return with multiple schedules, you've got multiple states, if it's your standard client, you know, a standard you know, family with a W two and some ten ninety nines, and that review process is 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 much quicker. You know, thirty to sixty minutes. But I would say if if the preparation is taking two hours, the review's taking half that time. If the preparation's taking four hours, the review t- is probably taking two.
1: So, so at the end of the day, it sounds like. In practice, you're you're easily ending out at th- three three plus hours per client between collecting the data, getting it in there, doing the review, you know, uh, queuing it up for the actual filing. So, at least there's some, I guess, sort of, it, the administrative text steps at the end to just actually get it queued up and and filed. But you you got to do that because you're actually prepared. So that is fully on you. So you're 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 talking about a like three plus hours per client sort of thing,
2: and that's sometimes w- we get a little pushback from clients sometimes where they don't think that it's going to take that long. But it, three hours really is kind of the the baseline, and what they forget is that review process. We're digging deep and making sure that it, it's it's not just crank out a return and and see you next year. It's making sure that we're maximizing our value and bringing up topics with them to help save them money or make changes to their financial picture. So once we explain it to them, they see our value. And one other thing that I think is really important to mention is this is an awesome way to prove your worth, especially with new clients. So. I would venture to say that a very large percentage of our client base, we manage their entire net worth. You know, they're not having two or three financial advisors in their life. And and part of that consolidation is because of the services that we offer. They can have it done in-house. One person understands all of these moving parts. But when you get a new client who's maybe apprehensive of handing over their entire net worth (laughs) to your firm, I have found that going through a tax season with them really proves to them that we add value and we do what we say we're going to do. And like you mentioned before, when you can concrete put something in front of them and say, you know, this tax strategy is going to save you $2500 not only this year but every year that we do this. You know, that's that's just complete value add to them. You know, and oftentimes those types of fines and those those planning conversations makes it much easier for them to trust us on all of the other components of their financial picture, you know, managing their investments and giving confidence in our long term financial planning. And it helps them even psychologically do what we suggest, you know? So I find it to be an, a, an incredible tool for prospects, if they don't already have a CPA, to come in, go through a tax season with us. And really prove to them that it's time and money well spent.
1: So, I out of curiosity, what's the tax preparation software that actually gets used to do this?
2: I use Intuit products, so I use ProSeries and Listsert, and there's other, you know, there's there's a couple other big ones out how there. How do
1: you like? How do you compare across them? Of like why pro series or why LeCert, or even what's the difference between pro series and lacert
2: yeah they're both intuit products oftentimes we we use pro series for as much as we absolutely can it's it's easy to use it can be done on the cloud lacert is kind of a next level and it's it's not as user friendly but there are certain limitations in pro series that they just simply don't have the the tax form and you have to go elsewhere to get that, and so Lasert is kind of our backup for those unique situations.
1: So it's sort of a Pro Series handles your normal rank and file returns. Lasert is your your more unusual, complex kinds of situations, uh, clients that have more esoteric stuff that just you need the you need the software that's actually got the weird, rare forms that hardly anyone uses, kind of thing.
2: And you'll find you'll run into that with tech software programs. And you know we've been using Pro Series since I started with the firm, so it's been a long time. That's one of those software and technology platforms in in our business that it's very difficult to switch. <laughs> the conversion is hard. The making sure you understand how the software is going to work. So once they get you, it's pretty sticky unless something goes really wrong or you're really unhappy with the the data input and so we've been happy with pro series it has it, definitely met our needs up to this point
1: yeah I guess at some point you get to a as long as the software still does the math right it's pretty hard to get fired from from being the provider because I'm I'm gonna assume you know prior year information auto loads and the current year carry forwards and carryovers auto load like there's just a whole bunch of stuff like that that makes it really convenient to keep using the tool you're already using once you start using one.
2: Those prior year tax returns are at your fingertips. You can see, you compare very easily two year comps with a with a single report. It's it's definitely to our advantage and the client's advantage in terms of time to stick with the tax software.
1: So, how many clients do you have that you go through this with? Like how many clients are is are you actually doing tax preparation work for.
2: So we work with about 105 families right now and we do tax returns for 60 to 65 of those of those families. And sometimes it's not just a 1040 you know they might have a partnership return that they need done or a trust tax return and so or a child's tax return you know so it's not just 60 or 65 returns each tax season i'm usually floating around you know the 95 to 100 tax returns a tax season which doesn't sound like a lot when when you're you know thinking big picture but when you, when you factor in the amount of time put into each tax return and the education and the planning it it's a significant part of my entire year. I would say, you know, 4 to 5 months of my entire year is dedicated to to taxes.
1: Yeah, I mean just when I when I think about it, your raw raw preparation time as you said is probably 3 plus hours per return probably averages out closer to four because I'm sure there's going to be a few that are just complex beasts that that certain clients have so you you might end out with 400 plus hours of of tax return just raw tax return time and I, you know if I just think about that relative to normal working schedule like 40 working hours in a classic week like that's 10 weeks almost 3 months if you literally just did full time nothing but tax return all day every day from when you wake until when you sleep and most people can't necessarily do that cuz like there are some other tasks to do through the day and other communication and professional development and management and client questions and all the other stuff in it so that drags out further and yeah it's 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 pretty pretty easy to see how that quickly adds up to three to four plus months worth of time. And, and we still haven't done ongoing professional development for taxes. Cause if you're going to prepare them, you actually really, really have to stay up on your CE or like you prepare the forms wrong and don't claim the credits. Right. And, and that's before you get into tax planning for clients, which then may consume even more time. So yeah, I really pretty, pretty easy to see once you start chunking it all together of like, yeah, that's easily 4 or 5 months of the year just just on all of the tax return work.
2: And you know, it it's different. I came from an accounting background. You know, I have my Master's of Accountancy. So I have that brain and that desire to do that kind of work, but I didn't want to do it 12 months out of the year. And so this was just such a fantastic blend of the things I like to do and the things I wanted to do with my career that I'm really fortunate that I found something that allows me to be a CPA for a good chunk of the year. But then I, I get to be a psychologist and a counselor and a financial planner the other, the other months.
1: So do you charge clients separately for this do you consider it part of the overall service like just when you're spending four to five months of the year on on tax preparation which like is that's a lot of time that's a lot of work do you separately charge them for tax returns or is it just hey if you've you know got the financial wherewithal to meet our minimums and work with us we include this because we work with some fairly affluent clients like how does this actually work from a a business model, and just to make sure that you're you're compensated for the amount of time that you're talking about.
2: Yeah, we the, for the majority of clients we do charge by the hour for this, and I think that that is very important to do because it it spells out your worth. <laughs> you know, it, it would be very easy if this was just part of their you know assets under management fee or their retainer to to not quite understand the time and energy that's put into this piece of their financial lives. So, yes, the majority of people pay hourly for this work. Some of our, you know, large comprehensive clients have it baked into their retainers. So, they're paying a quarterly retainer and tax prep is part of that, but that's only probably 5 of our of our clients. We'll do it that way. The rest of them are being charged hourly, and you know it. It's grown a little bit each year. I I estimate that it it's about four and a half to five percent of the gross revenue of our firm each year. So it's not a huge component to our revenue, but it's an important one. Number one, it's not tied to the market. <laughs> Number two, it's just a, a different cash flow source. And having clients pay hourly, like I said before, really makes them understand the time and effort that's put into that on their behalf. And, you know, I'm careful. I I make sure I understand what's out there in the market. So I'm not overcharging. And I'm not undercharging. You know, lots of those general, you know, HR block type places will charge a base and then charge per form. Or, you know, coming from public accounting, I have a pretty good understanding of, of what they're charging staff time for. So to get your tax return done by a CPA with 15 years of experience, we're definitely treating it as a value add and in a way to keep the client satisfied and with us for a very long, long long-term relationship.
1: And so what do you charge in practice? Is this like $200 an hour, $400 an hour? Exactly.
2: $200 an hour. Okay. That was my billing rate for this year. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. And, and so I guess three ish hours on average, like basic three hours. Yep. So though I'm going to guess like a lot of clients come in and sort of the $500 $500 to $1,000 kind of range, uh, and really complex ones go up from there. That's exactly right. So so as you as you look at this and, and how it fits into the business model, I guess just talk to us a little bit more about how exactly you see this fitting in and blending in with the, with the business model of it's only, Right. I also put that in air quote, it's, it's only maybe five percent of the revenue of the of the firm. So you're you're still driving the bulk of the revenue from from other sources. It's a big time commitment for the firm. But as you've noted, like you end out way deeper and more comprehensive with clients because you you see everything and really get in everything when you're preparing the tax return. So just how do you think about these dynamics of it's five percent of our revenue, but it's a much larger than five percent piece of our relationship. How do you look at this and wyatt? it?
2: Well, the, you just summed it up beautifully. It's It's such a huge component of the relationship, not only in building credibility, but it's very hard to want to fire your investment advisor, your financial planner, and your tax preparer all in one shot. And we make the client understand that they are our biggest priority. And we are not just going to harvest their assets and, and manage them in charge a fee. We're also going to make sure that they understand their tax situation and that they're maximizing the law to their advantage and how that correlates into their long-term goals and planning strategies. And so it's really kind of this just building of a of a pyramid, you know, where we're the the heart of our firm is this comprehensive comprehensive planning with the tax focus. And then we're adding the investment management and we're in, ensuring that they have the right bench of financial professionals in their lives with an estate planning attorney and that they're covered on the life insurance front. And really, it's just a such a foundational component of, of everything we do at the firm. And it, it makes clients sticky. It makes clients very satisfied. It's just a really good marriage of what we do.
1: Can you actually see differences in practice between the clients you have that do tax returns with you, and the clients you have that don't, because I think you said like roughly two thirds actually do the returns with you, and and roughly one third do not. Like, do you see differences in terms of uh, stickiness retention? You know, like uh, the retention rate of our tax return clients is five percent higher than the retention rate of our non tax return clients. Like, are you, does it actually show up at that at that level?
2: It does, um, you know. If if we look at our retention levels, they're they're high, <laughs> anyway. But when we when we break that out between retention of tax and not non tax clients, it's it's five to six percent higher on the tax clients retaining us versus you know maybe losing a relationship that's just investment management or investment management and planning and that's really where the relationships come from right i mean the more time you're spending with clients obviously you're spending more time answering more questions going through on the tax front than you are a non tax planning client just just because of the work but even even a planning client you know those relationships are cultivated by by time and focus and conversation and so it makes it it makes it difficult for them to want to find something else when they're e- even in a bad market year, for example, you know, they're, it's less punishing when they know that you're doing all of these other things for them.
1: Well, it is striking to me, I mean, it's just the, the, the fascinating nature of sort of retention math. You know, if I, if I imagine like a, a, a you know, an advisory firm that is 92% retention rates, and you do tax preparation work and you get them up to 97% retention rates. You know, I think for some firms, it's sort of like that doesn't, doesn't I really feel like a huge difference. Like anything 90 plus percent on retention rates is a pretty darn big number. But when you translate that into, you know, average 10 years of clients, like a 92% retention rate firm, clients turnover in an average of 12 years. At a 97% retention rate, your clients turnover in an average of 30 plus years. And so if you just sort of imagine like, what would it look like if all your clients stayed an average of 30 years instead of 12, given you know, what we otherwise get paid on an ongoing basis? It's like, oh, there's a lot of long-term value in this. Like That, that quickly becomes a big number uh, above and beyond just what you get paid for the tax return work itself.
2: Well, and they reach out to you for help with their children. You know, their children grow up and might need help with college planning or help with their tax return when they get their first job or you know all of those things and that can turn into long term you know legacy type of relationships we we have multiple families that we're working with different generations and that's so rewarding and it's such an honor to get to be part of their lives that way it really does add value from all angles if you've got the manpower to get it done,
1: yeah. As to say, so let's talk about that for for a moment. I mean, if, if advisors are hearing this and and interested in going this route, I, I mean, I guess the first question, like, do you, do you have to be a CPA in order to do this and add this into your firm, or like, do I have to go become an enrolled agent to do this in the firm? What like, what are the requirements for for doing client tax preparation?
2: Yeah, in order to represent clients in front of the IRS you do need to be a CPA or an enrolled agent. So, an enrolled agent is the best avenue to go if you, you know, have have no interest in making sure you have the education requirements to sit for the CPA exam,
1: which is high, like just I I've I know I've looked up in the past like I, I think CPA education requirements now is something like 150 credit hours including a master's degree, like it's, you know, some advisors that are unhappy that the CFP board has added a bachelor's degree requirement, like CPA license, is full-on master's degree, and with not any master's degree, like master's degree in accounting, with a whole bunch of credit hours in in specific areas of accounting.
2: Right, and uh, so it it would be a huge commitment to become a CPA if that's not where you really wanted to be. Plus, you're learning areas of. Being a certified public accountant that might not really apply to your financial planning practice. So, right, and then, like a,
1: a couple of semesters of audit classes, audit that yeah. you probably won't be doing as a financial advisor. But but you have to know if you want to be a certified public accountant because audit attestation is actually a big thing for what what accountants do.
2: Yep. So enrolled agent is done through the Internal Revenue Service and it's exam based and you have continuing education requirements once you pass the exam. But that allows you to prepare returns, represent clients in front of the IRS and various state entities. It's really a great way to be able to add it to your practice. Oftentimes when I have advisors that, you know, thinking about doing this or career changers, I always advocate that they look into the enrolled agent designation because it, it, it is an advantage for sure.
1: And and do you know, just what does it take to do the enrolled agent? I mean, as we said, like CPA is m- m- master's degree and a known to be very, very difficult a- exam. Like what does it take for becoming an enrolled agent?
2: You know, I'm a little rusty on those requirements. I believe it's a multi-part exam there's an annual fee, and then there's continuing education requirements each and every year in order to maintain that designation. I don't believe that well, there's I, an education requirement. I know requirement. there's CE
1: requirements because we had to add enrolled agent CE on Kitsis.com because there are a lot of advisors becoming enrolled agents that said we want our EA credit. Okay, so, so I guess similar in scope to some other programs, multi-part exam, annual fee, CE requirements, but but I guess at least my understanding as well, like this is more of a, you study for it for six months and then queue up and, and take the exam. So kind of not not quite as long as CFP certification where a lot of advisors may go 12 to 18 months, but but not a CPA license of like, Go get your graduate degree and then start studying for a much larger exam.
2: Yeah. And it's going to really focus on the preparation and understanding the forms. And it's going to be a, a, a deeper layer into the preparation realm than maybe the tax component of the, you know, CFP designation, where that's really more planning focused.
1: So, how do you look at this in just the decision to do the tax work yourself versus? I guess either outsourcing it and, and finding a, you know an external CPA to work with, so you know you don't have four to five months of the year kind of wreaking havoc on your life, or hiring an associate to do the tax returns and just free up your time to do other planning work. Like how do, how do you think through in in a in a firm like yours keeping this versus expanding the team to do it versus outsourcing it. Versus, I guess, just saying, hey, we work with our client CPAs because we want to get referrals from them. We don't do the tax preparation work at all. Like, how, how do you think through that balance?
2: Well, you know, it has up to this point, it has been doable for us to have it all in house. We really love the idea that our clients understand that it's the three of us on the team working for them in all of these different capacities. I'm an email or a phone call away. It's sitting in a planning meeting and and knowing that your accountant's right there to understand the tax ramifications of a different investment allocation. You know, that's powerful. And we have always kept it in-house because of that. We are at a point now where we need some help. And so what we have done is we have found this remarkable independent contractor who is getting her education requirements for the CFP. She's passed the CFP exam. She is an enrolled agent and she has gone through a tax season with another accountant. And so we've brought her on board on a part-time basis to help us with the tax planning and preparation side of it. Because I'm getting to the point in my career where I want to focus more on getting clients and spending time with my existing clients. I'm also very passionate about helping people that are navigating major life changes like divorce or loss of a spouse. And so I'm at one of those points in my career where where I want to do more in different veins of the financial planning practice. And so we are doing kind of this six month trial period with an independent contractor to see if that is enough help for us. So I'm very excited to see what this next tax season is going to look like. And then we'll really be able to decide if we need to add a fourth, you know, and, and have a, a truly a full time employee, or if this will be enough to let me stay involved, but I have, I have much more help on the preparation side.
1: Because I guess the weird effect for this, if you're if you're an advisory firm thinking about hiring, like it's kind of rough to hire a full time team member who who only works four or five months of the year. Like not not to knock it, but like if you are hiring someone only to do the tax preparation work in your firm, like you got to find stuff for them to do in the other seven months of the year. But it's really intensive work, so. You know, you got to be careful if you don't have enough depth to do it for the four or five months that you're in the intensive season.
2: And that's exactly why we are kind of, we call it the dating period. It, it's going to really help us understand if we have enough work for someone full time. We really love our independent contractor because she's got the planning and the tax experience. But yeah, and a lot of times what you see is financial planning firms partnering with a CPA firm and and they work with each other's synergies, referring each other business. My business partner tried that in the early days. So in 1997, when he formed the firm, he actually partnered with, with a, an accounting firm and, and that just really didn't work for them. And we've had these conversations in this industry for 15 years, what an amazing referral source CPAs can be. However, you're also seeing CPA firms bring on planners. And so they're actually, you know, potentially becoming some of our competition. So you have to find what works for you. It can be a little unbalanced if they're, if they're referring you investment management clients, you know, that potentially can be a lot more revenue and a lot more fees over the year than they're generating with, you know, tax prep clients that you're referring to them. And so there can be some conflict there.
1: Well, I mean, as you noted in your context, like you're doing a lot of intensive tax planning work. But from a business revenue end, like it's five percent of your revenue, way more than five percent of your time, but five percent of your revenue, fine ROI for you. Because if you take wealth management clients and turn them from twelve-year average clients to thirty-year average clients, like eighteen years of wealth management fees kind of obliterates the the you know the this swing pressure of of some of the tax work in, in a long term practice, which is, you know, great when you're doing internally. But the the bad news, I think, as you noted, is a lot of accounting firms are starting to come into the wealth management business because they've kind of realized like, oh wait, the wealth management work we refer out is like twenty X the fees of what we do internally. Like maybe we should do this.
2: Exactly exactly and that's a that's the other reason we absolutely will not do tax preparation and planning for anybody that is not a client we do not have the time we do not have the capacity and i don't want to be in the hourly you know tax prep business
1: and i'm struck as well that I mean, at the end of the day as you said 60 to 60 65 clients 100 ish returns Three plus hours of return, probably four hundred hours of 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 work on returns, and and you're charging two hundred dollars an hour. So there there is like eighty thousand dollars worth of worth of revenue there, give or take a little. And you know, it's like you you could actually like that does get to the point where even if they've only got limited work to do th- through the year, like you actually have enough tax preparation revenue to hire a person whose job is to just sit there and do tax returns all year long you can you can get a smart whippersnapper young CPA for less than $80,000 in most areas to sit there and do the grinding work where you just have limited review and you know if you can find anything for them to do in the other 7 months of the year the math works out okay i guess only because you're just getting to this level though when you're at 20 30 40 clients doing it and 30 40 50 60 tax returns. The math really doesn't add up. You got to get to some critical mass level before you're even close to that crossover.
2: Exactly. And so that's why we are at that crossroads with with what our staffing is going to look like in the next 5 years.
1: So talk to us a little bit about the just the firm overall. I mean, you've kind of mentioned there's there's three of you. Brian was the founder who's kind of the the investment guy and the CIO for the firm. You're doing the planning and, and tax work. There's other revenue because the, the tax return revenue is only about 5% of the overall. So can you just talk to us about the overall business of what you're doing there?
2: Sure. So quick kind of synopsis. Brian has a CPA background as well. He worked for Arthur Anderson at a college And then moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where he worked for Sterling Limited, which was a family office. And that's really where he got his experience and he loved the planning and the investment work that they did in that family office. You know, they were doing multi-year cash flow projections and balance sheets and managing their investments and bill paying and doing their tax prep. And so what he wanted Peak Financial to be was very close to that family office feel but for clients that aren't worth 50 million dollars. And so he wanted to bring it to, you know, the a, a lower level of net worth. And so he brought he was he was on his own with that accounting business partner until 1999 and they decided to part ways. At that point he brought on Lori who is our director of client service. And, you know, when you have a firm of three people, you're all doing different jobs (laughs) all the time. And that's what keeps it so interesting and engaging to us. But Lori's in charge of all of our client service. She's in charge of our compliance. She helps me on data entry. And she's really just amazing face with our clients. I spend a huge chunk of my time uh, with clients and client relationships between the tax and the planning practice. And I'm involved on the investment side as well. And then Brian's really focused on on the investment management side. And we're a little unique uh, in that we still believe in individual equities. And so Brian's doing the research and building portfolios around, you know, twenty or twenty five individual equity names. Obviously, we still use ETFs and mutual funds where where we think it's appropriate, but um, that takes an enormous amount of time on his part. And so, when I came on, you know, I was twenty three years old and knew nothing about financial planning. So it took. Years of me really just kind of being mentored by Brian in all of these capacities of the financial planning process. And eventually I was able to, you know, kind of quote unquote work on my own. And that's r- when I really started building out the planning practice. Brian knew he wanted to be a planning focused firm. When I came on in 2005, he was struggling to get to offer as much planning as he wanted to do because he was so bogged down on the investment management and tax side of things. So I immediately took over the the tax preparation. At that point, he was reviewing my tax returns and, and probably did so for the first three or four years. I'll never forget the first tax return that I prepared at Peak Financial and getting you know, just like a page and a half of review points, <laughs> you know, so...
1: Oh, there's nothing like that first, that first <laughs> reading experienced. Uh-huh.
2: Exactly. And so the jobs and the responsibilities have kind of evolved over time. I, I think Brian absolutely wanted a more comprehensive planning side to our practice. I don't think he quite understood just how powerful and dynamic the three of us could be. So now, fast forward to today, and really, we still manage the entire practice as a team. It's not my clients and his clients. It allows our clients to kind of choose who they, you know, bond with the most as to be kind of their lead contact with the firm. And it Brian's able to focus much heavier on the investment side, you know, which interests him so much. He, he would sit in front of his Bloomberg screens all day if you let him. And it allows me to cultivate and really nurture the client relationships from the planning and tax perspective. And then Lori works super hard to ensure that clients have everything that they need and that our our compliance is up to date and she really will do anything that's asked of her. And, you know, she's been around since 1999. I've been there since 2005. I was fortunate enough to get to buy into the firm in 2017. And it's just been an amazing roller coaster of ups and downs. (laughs)
1: So what's the firm's core business model at the end of the day is it is it an an assets under management model for the portfolio management that Brian drives and and then the the rest of the planning work that you do is is bundled into that relationship?
2: It is absolutely. So we primarily work on an assets under management fee schedule and the way we look at that is you know, half of that goes to the investment management component and half of it goes to the financial planning work. So clients are not typically paying separately for the, the comprehensive planning piece. They're only paying separately and hourly for the tax preparation.
1: And and like, what does that fee schedule start at or, or look like?
2: It starts at 1% and goes down from there.
1: And do you guys have have minimums as well?
2: We do. Our minimum is $500,000 at this point, uh, just because we want to be very sure that we've got the capacity to, to do what they need on a, on a full scale basis, as well as that that, that is the right long term relationship for all of us. Referrals, we're a little more flexible on that. You know, there's no greater compliment than when a client gives us a referral. So often we're flexible on that.
1: So, so people that are coming cold, it's, it's, it's $500,000, but if someone gets referred in, you may be flexible just to not have to turn away someone that got referred in and have that kind of awkward moment. Potentially.
2: Yeah. As long as it's a good fit from a relationship standpoint, you know, the, especially on the planning side, so much of that work is in the first, you know, two years. And so you really want those relationships to be good fits because we want them to be decades long. That's really what we try to focus on.
1: And and so how many how many clients or what's the asset base for the firm overall at this point?
2: We are at about 175 million of assets under management and about 105 families.
1: Interesting. So while you've got a a $500,000 Minimum in in practice, your average client size is is much higher than that. You're you're at almost one and a half million as an average.
2: Yeah, on, on on average. Now that skews differently. We have some, you know, very ultra high net worth individuals that skews that higher. But you know, we also have the client that has two hundred and fifty thousand of assets under management who are you know uh, doctors and we're working with them to get their student loans paid off and maximizing their employer benefits and so our client demographic is is very is is very broad if we had any sort of niche it would certainly be women who have gone through a major life transition you know we we have and men actually we have many clients who are widows or widowers or have gone through a divorce and have had to you know, completely reset or learn how to manage their financial lives.
1: So I am curious, just as a firm that's taken a pretty hard line on its positioning around charging separately for tax preparation, just why the decision to charge separately for tax preparation, but not the decision to charge separately for financial planning, When is, as you noted, financial planning is a, a big chunk as well.
2: Well, you know, it, the assets under management fee that we have always, you know, our model has always been that. Since I've been in the business has definitely seen, you know, commoditization and what exactly can you get out there for 25 basis points or 50 basis points. And we just saw A need come, you know, going through 2008, 2009, we saw the need to make sure that we were adding as much value as possible to that assets under management fee. And for us, that just couldn't exist without comprehensive financial planning. And so we felt that it was justified within our fee schedule to include. The financial planning in their assets under management fee because we had worked hard at that point to become very efficient to utilize a lot of technology to help us be better at our jobs and and be more comprehensive for the client and so we just decided that investment management financial planning all in at that standard one percent rate and then you know break points from there the tax preparation and planning we absolutely wanted to maintain being hourly, simply so the client understood what time and effort goes into that, and that's really how we decided to to differentiate
1: ourselves. So, so talk to us a little bit about just your your own journey in coming into the into the industry. I mean, were you, were you someone that always wanted to be in the in the world of financial planning and went to school and got your Accounting degree as a pathway to financial planning, or or did you sort of land here after the fact? Because these are some of the twists and turns our careers take. Uh, Like, what what was your actual journey into financial planning?
2: I definitely had some twists and turns, and you know, like anyone at eighteen years old going off to college, I don't think you have a very clear picture of what you want to do for the rest of your life. I knew I wanted to go into business. I grew up in a very small town in northeastern Montana. My town was about 2,000 people. My move to college was a big one. You know, I jumped to a town of 60,000 people at the University of Montana. And I initially had these huge dreams. I thought that I was going to tackle the Asian equity markets. And so I started my freshman year of college off in finance with a minor in Mandarin Chinese. And I lasted a semester in Mandarin Chinese. It was one of the most humbling experiences and probably hit at, at such a great time in my life. It was a six credit course and I worked my tail off and I got a C. And I think it was probably the first C I had ever gotten. <laughs> and so it was just a very good dose of reality. I reassessed after that and decided that that minor wasn't for me. I was also working to fund my education. You know, I was working 25 hours a week while going to school full time. And so I switched to accounting and finance. And that was a good place for me for the rest of my freshman year and, and into my sophomore year. Work, constraints, um, and then really kind of, I, I, I took a step back and I tried to look at it very objectively. And, you know, I'm at the University of Montana in Missoula. I'm, I'm not at Stanford. I'm not at some school that's known for their finance program. And so, What they are known for is an excellent master's of accountancy program. And so I decided to drop the finance arm and focus strictly on accounting. And that's really when I started to flourish in college. I was very good at accounting. I was very good at managing my time. I was able to still get through the program in four years and, and work a lot I got accepted into the master's program, which they typically only take 30 30 students a year. Landed a, a coveted TA teacher's assistant scholarship through that that tough year, and ultimately ended up becoming the student of the year chosen by my peers. So it it was a fantastic decision for me to focus on accounting and really to, really to maximize my worth at the university that I was at. After that year, I was they get you very prepared for the CPA exam. I sat for that immediately. I passed 3 of my 4 sections right off the right off the bat. So I hit the ground running. They also have a very good recruitment program and that's how I landed at Deloitte.
1: Okay, so you were you were Big 4 accounting right out of school because I guess that's that's who hoovers up all of the graduating students out of all the the graduate level accounting programs out there or the the big four accounting firms
2: exactly and i initially you you go into the spring of your master's year and that's really when recruiting starts h- hitting hard and i remember telling one of my friends that i just wasn't interested in you know in in the big four space i, I didn't want to work like that I knew I wasn't interested in audit. I, I was leaning towards tax, but I went through the process anyway and ended up uh, liking Deloitte. I specifically wanted to be within a day's travel of Montana, which, as you know, can be hard to travel to and get in and out of. So I was looking at Seattle, Portland, and Denver. Denver just fit my lifestyle. And so that's how I landed with with Deloitte. I came and landed
1: in, with Deloitte in Denver.
2: Yep, in the tax on the tax side. The way that my master's program and the CPA exam worked, I started with Deloitte in July, early July of 2005, which didn't get me kind of on path with all of the majority of their other recruits. They often start in May after tax season or they start, you know, in like November in preparation for the next tax season. And so I really missed out on some of that amazing large-scale training that big four accounting firms are really known for, and I kind of just got thrown into the mix right away. And you know, it was a very eye-opening experience. It I I had left a town of 60,000 people to you know move to Denver. I had an apartment, you know, 3 blocks from my downtown office. It was a it was a big change and a and a big adjustment for all facets of my life. Very exciting, but my gut just hated the work. I hated feeling like I was working from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. and the competition of who's there the longest and how many billable hours did you have this week and where some people really thrive in that environment, I immediately saw myself hating it. And so here I am in you know November of 2005 and I remember calling my parents and, and telling them, how unhappy i was and my parents are they were very blue collar worked very hard their whole lives rural and for for them to hear that their youngest daughter had you know gotten her master's degree and got to go work for this this big prestigious corporation they were they were a little apprehensive to be supportive that i wanted to throw in the towel so early But to me at that point, it just felt like I was miserable and I I needed to cut and run. And so this was back when, you know, everybody was on monster.com at that point. You know, that's where everybody was finding their jobs. And I happened to pull up the Denver Post online one day and I found a posting for, you know, basically an entry level Financial advisor who was specifically looking for ideally a CPA. And I just thought that this might be my opportunity. And so I, I submitted my resume via email and kind of felt like there's no way I'm not going to get a call for this. You know, I, I was feeling very confident. And a week went by, and I remember being on the phone whining to my sister, and she was like, just just follow up you know just it, it's not gonna hurt to make a phone call and follow up with them. And so I did and I, I got in touch with Brian and and asked him if he had received my resume and if if he had any interest in meeting and keep in mind this is a 23 year old you know so that was that was a big that was a big step for me to make that phone call and he told me he had never received my resume so it probably had gone to a junk folder. I immediately faxed my resume in. and <laughs> Because it
1: was 2005, so we can still fax <laughs> these things. Exactly.
2: And within hours, I had a, a phone call set up with him for a few days later. He wanted to talk on the phone before we met face-to-face. And, uh, you know, I, I was going through my research in terms of understanding what the firm was about and what they did. And, you know, you really only have their website to to gauge that. and. So I noticed there's there's two people on this website and, and I'm thinking, oh, those are the those are the partners of the firm. You know, they, they don't list all of their staff. And so I go into this phone call and I remember sitting in silence in my little apartment, and I just made a commitment to myself that I was going to be very honest with with them. And so I Told them that I had worked for small companies, you know, my entire life from high school into college, and I was used to doing so many different things and wearing different hats and and really mattering. And I and I wanted that again. And that's when he told me that the firm was indeed just two people.
1: <laughs>
2: and um, Care-
1: careful what you wish for, you might get
2: it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that he would love to meet in person. And so we met in person and we still joke, you know, I had braces at 23 years old. He hired this 23 year old kid with braces to become the third employee of his firm. You know, the rest
1: is history. Very cool. Very cool. And then what was the, what was the transition that, you said you had ultimately become a partner, bought in and become a partner. So, what did what did that transition look like after ten plus years at the firm?
2: Yeah, so I mean, the first few years, it was just drinking from the fire hose. You know, it was it was adding value where I could on the tax preparation and and relieving that pressure for Brian. But it was constant mentoring and teaching for him for a, a good solid year. I don't feel like I. Could really do anything on my own for the first six months in terms of understanding what goes into the investment management or the financial planning side of things. And then, you know, we went through 2008 and 2009 together, and it was nothing like a crisis to really solidify the relationships within the firm. You know, I think it took that long for the three of us to really become family. And from that point on, you know, we have been, it's, we, we have kind of an office policy that you try not to take anything personal, but you ultimately sometimes do. And, and if we do, we have one day to be upset about it. And the next morning is a reset and we focus back on the business. And so, you know, kind of that, that theme of the office, especially when only working with two other people has been really important. So launching out of 2009, we we really understood just how much planning needed to be done for our client base. And that's really when we hit the ground running. It was also probably the point in time where he was starting to review less and less of my tax returns. And so we had a solid few years there where it was very planning and tax focused and cultivating those relationships and, and watching the AUM grow. I had my first um, baby in 2010, and I remember being just petrified of maternity leave. You know what? What was that going to look like for me? What was that going to look like for them? What if? What if they realized they didn't need me as much? Or you know, there were just a lot of fears there, especially coming from a small firm that didn't didn't you know kind of got to write their own rules in terms of how they were going to going to treat maternity leave. And that was quite a turning point in my career, actually, the other way, because it really opened Brian's eyes as to how much I did and how many different components of the business I was involved in. And so this event that had given me a lot of anxiety on the career front turned out to be really remarkable in proving my worth. So I returned from maternity leave with just this new sense of appreciation for them for allowing me the opportunity to, to take some time off and newfound appreciation for me and, and all that all that I was doing for the firm. It was very successful. I had another baby in 2012. We, we crushed that maternity leave <laughs> together really started to build the practice from there.
1: What was different that maternity leave went so much better in 2012 than 2010 that that you were able to crush it? Cuz I I know this is a a challenge point a fear point for a lot of Firms that have only a few people on the team that like it's a real disruption when a person
2: when a third of your workforce is, out. is gone.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah, when you lose a third of your workforce for maternity leave. So, like, how did you actually handle it? That made at least maternity leave the second time around feel pretty smooth. That you you could say you crushed it. The first
2: time around, not crushed it. I had so much anxiety around. When I was, you know, maybe doing some things with work, I should be with the baby or when I was with the baby, I should be paying attention to work. So there was a lot of anxiety around that first go. Coming back from that and and Brian and Lori really articulating my worth to the firm helped tremendously in my confidence that I could take a few weeks to spend with my, not a few, you know, six to eight, spend with my child and it, it allowed the second one to be much more fulfilling for me as a mother, as well as I still stayed involved. There's no there's no doubt about it. I cannot say that I just shut off for eight weeks. I didn't. But what I got better at was delegating my time. So there was much less anxiety around being an employee, much less anxiety around being a mother. So I was just able to manage my time much more efficiently to where I could still be involved in the firm and contribute and, and get some of my work done while at the same time feeling like I was much more present and available to my, my baby during that second time around. And that all stemmed from just having confidence in myself and confidence that my job was going to be there when I got back. And so it really was kind of this culture in our firm and both Brian and Lori very willingly stepped up and took on some of my tasks just to even ease that burden on me. So it was definitely a team effort and it just went so much more smoothly the second time around.
1: So So what was the transition that ultimately led to you become a, becoming a partner in the firm?
2: Well, you know, personally, 2012 through 2015 was a, was a very hard period in my life. And the way that I dealt with it was to really dive, headfirst into my work because I felt like it was the one part of my life that I could control. And it was oftentimes my escape from some of the things that were going on personally. And I think that was the period of time where I really proved not only my abilities to be a good financial planner and, and 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 tax preparer, but that my commitment was absolutely there and unrelenting to the firm, and I think Brian ultimately decided to let me buy in because he knew just how amazing of a of a team we we've built and what a practice we've built. And he wanted to reward me by by giving me ownership, and I'm sure a component of that also is to him was to ensure that I, I would stay around. You know, after that many years of working together and and building the practice that you want or that you know you're always achieving to go for, you don't want to lose a third of your workforce to to the competition. So,
1: but I know you 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 kind of talked about this as Brian wanted to reward you for ownership. But you did say that you, you bought in. So the structure was, was not just for equity as compensation per se, it, it was ultimately a, a buy-in structure for you?
2: Yes. So initially, yes, it's it's been a combination of both. So the first year, Brian was a big believer in you know you should you should buy buy into the firm. He didn't want to just give me ownership as part of my compensation structure. So that first year, um, we came up with you know a partnership agreement. We came up with what we thought were reasonable factors on gross revenue uh, and and came up with an equation that of how I would buy in each, each year.
1: So you built your own valuation. We,
2: we did. Yep. And, and we, since that point as part of my compensation, he has rewarded me with more ownership, but I have the opportunity and so far I have bought in every year since based on our valuation formula.
1: Okay. And so, so the, the, I guess like the, Operating agreement or artistical corporation itself actually have not just a valuation per se, but a valuation formula. And so you can just run the numbers through some portion of revenue or profits or some combination thereof.
2: We used gross revenue just because that's less, you, it's not, you know, you can't manipulate it. Uh, right. Well, I, it I guess expensive. Particularly as
1: a CPA, you are very cognizant to the ways that profits in a small business can be adjusted by what business owners do or do not pay themselves or run through the business or not run through the business
2: yep and also factored in you know we understand what goes on in the industry and what what books of business you know typically what those are valued at and factored in but we also had to take into consideration that my work as an employee has built has built some of this valuation You know, and so we came up with something that we thought was fair and it's based on, you know, rolling 12 months of revenue and it's, it has worked out well so far. And then, you know, ultimately the goal is when Brian's ready to retire, I will issue him a note for the rest and, and pay him out of revenue for, you know, probably three to five years. And and then eventually the plan is that I will, I will own and take over the firm exclusively one day.
1: So, so functionally relative to, I guess, going industry rates and multiples, like is, is your, do you view the, the valuation that you use as being at market rates? Is this sort of, is there a discount built in to recognize, you know, you have contributed to valuation and building in the first place, but there's a buy-in. And so you find like a discounted value. Yes. How does it,
2: it's discounted versus market because of, you know my component that has been responsible for that revenue growth as an employee and even now so we came up we came up with a factor that's below market rate for that reason
1: what surprised you the most in trying to build your career as a as a financial advisor
2: you know there's two two things that have surprised me the most one what a different lens it has become to actually be an owner versus what it was like to be an employee. I feel like, I mean, obviously I've, I've worked hard in in both capacities, but it's so rewarding to know at the end of the day that a piece of this is mine and I'm working towards my own future goals. And it makes those longer hours <laughs> and those the difficult situations easier to stomach because I feel like I'm at a point in my career where I'm working for myself. And I, I don't think I recognized that in my young 20s. I can't say that that was ultimately a goal of mine. I, I didn't have a clear picture of of what that would look like for me. But especially now as a divorced parent, it is just so incredibly important to me to be able to Manage my own time, manage my own schedule, and being an owner working with you know two incredible people has allowed me to do that. You know um, that's really important, and and then the other the other surprising piece of it is how hard it is to actually let it go. You know it's very hard to shut off, let go of all the things that are constantly rolling in your head with with the the financial lives of these various clients there are times that i will wake up in the night like out of sleep thinking about some something maybe i you know some irrational fear of something i've missed or on the flip side some really great planning ideas have come to me you know in the very early morning hours. I've learned to listen to those because one I think they tell you they indicate that you might be too stressed and you need to take a little self-care time and and refresh. But two, that's really the time of my day where it's quiet and there's no distraction of of emails and text messages and social media and so I actually keep a notebook by my bed and sometimes some really great ideas formulate in, in those
1: quiet hours. So what was the low point in the in the journey for you?
2: The lowest point in in my journey has definitely been was October of 2014. My older brother died by suicide. And this everyone who has has gone through this experience can understand what I'm about to say, because you just do not see it coming. You can go over it in your mind again and again and again, and and maybe pick up some, some individual signs of things changing, but there was just no indication of it. My brother was an amazing human being. He was a lieutenant commander in the US Navy. He was a navigator on the Hawkeye, which is the only propeller airplane to land on aircraft carriers. And he just was amazingly good at everything he did. You know, he was super smart, super charismatic, very funny, homecoming king. I mean, Go back to five year old Joe, and he was just loved and cherished by everybody who got to have him in their life. And to me, You know, I was his little sister. We grew up together. We had a bond that I've learned that not a lot of siblings have. I would almost compare my relationship to him and my sister more like a twin relationship where we, the three of us, spent so much time together. We relied on each other for so much that when he was gone and not only gone but lost in such a tragic way. It made me just spiral for quite a quite some time into this place where I I questioned everything, you know, what I could have done, what what I did do. Was I too distracted by my job? Was I too distracted by my two young children? You know, I I'm so grateful that my my daughters, who are now 10 and 8, were so little at that point because I barely remember 2015. I was in such such a grieving spot that my memories of that whole year feel lost, and I'm grateful that they don't remember their mom that way. But coming from that place, I have developed so much more empathy, so much better listening skills, and a much clearer understanding that you need to, and, and especially as it relates to our financial planning work, you have to meet people where they are, you know? And, and some people aren't ready for the very deep conversations about their money stories or, or how their childhood or, or their life experiences have developed their biases relating to money, you know, and you have to cultivate those conversations and those experiences. And you have to listen more than you talk. I mean, people say that all the time in this profession, but it's very true. This is about them and, and how you can make their lives better. And it also really drove me to want to work with people who had gone through similar instances of loss. And once I got over the tremendous sorrow and fear and guilt and sadness, I made a decision that I was going to live my life that made him proud. And it's almost this weird feeling as if you're living for them, you know, and, and, and I've talked to other people who have lost siblings and lost loved ones. And and they all kind of echo that, that you almost have the, you almost feel this responsibility to live your best life because you're, you're sharing that with them. And I believe in that. And so out of that darkness has come a much more self-confident, value-driven, you know, person. I know myself a lot better now than I did before that. And those types of experiences you cannot replicate in a textbook and it makes you a much better planner. It makes you a much better person. It makes you a much better friend and so I, I would like to think that I am turning that horrible circumstance into something something positive, and and to speak about it, and to not shy away from it. It, it took me years to to not shy away from it, but I don't do that anymore. Especially in this profession, you know, there this profession is full of very driven, very smart, very competitive people, and. You are not immune to mental health issues or stress management or anxiety just because you have certain characteristics or you know or, or certain skill sets. And I think this industry is fraught with anxiety and stress. And there needs to be more open conversations about how we manage those things and, and how we take care of ourselves and. That's why I I share my story on that experience.
1: I I appreciate you being willing to share your story. I think it's a a powerful one for others who are going through you whatever that dark spot is in their lives. Because unfortunately, the you know we we do have dark dark stages that come and have to figure out how to work through them. And and I think as you you put it, figuring out how to turn even a horrible circumstance into into something that's positive.
2: And and that realization that everybody has their own journey, you know, everybody walks their own path, and it, it's fraught with struggles and pain. And just because mine incorporates suicide doesn't mean it's any any more greater or worse than somebody who's dealing with divorce or the loss of a loss of a parent. Or it just breeds empathy, and understanding that we're all doing the best we can with, with what cards we've been been dealt. There's an amazing documentary out there done by Bill Coors um, shortly before he passed away called The Will to Live. And that is such a powerful message of turning just total and repeated tragedies into a fulfilling, happy, well-balanced life. He was on the forefront of understanding that exercise and fresh air and you know can be you know important treatments and components of, of dealing with grief, anxiety and so if anybody's looking for for something that's interesting in that space, I would definitely recommend that they, Watch the will to live, and it you learn so much about this this guy whose family is so deeply rooted in the alcohol beverage industry. What he did for himself, what he did for his employees it, it, it's a it's a great place to to start.
1: So, as you look back over this journey of the the career and building as an advisor for for fifteen plus years now, like what do you know now that you wish you could? Go back and tell twenty three year old you as you were getting started on this journey.
2: You know, I've I've come to the conclusion that as we're younger, more things in life feel very black and white, and you live in this space where something is either a hundred percent wrong or something is either a hundred percent right. And I definitely viewed life and my career with that lens as a, as a younger person in this profession. Now I like to say I, I live in the gray, <laughs> you know, and with that, I think comes a lot less judgment on on, you know, like the financial planning side of things. I'm not there to judge how my clients spend their money. I'm not there to tell them how long they want me to Plan. They live, you know, I am constantly reminded that these are their goals. These are their plans. And yes, I am absolutely there to make suggestions and to disagree with them and to provide alternatives. But I'm not there to pass judgment. And I am not there to fit them into this box that I think that they should reside in. And I think 23 year old me definitely saw things in in a much more black and white way.
1: So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is, is even just the word success means very different things to different people. And so as, as you built the success of your career and now as a partner a principal in the firm and the business is going so well, how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: At this point for me, success is the freedom to spend my time on the things that are most important to me. After losing Joe, I really had to evaluate who I was and what my values are and where I want to spend my time. And making partner in the firm... And knowing that my hard work had paid off in that respect has, has been very fulfilling. But it's more about being able to have that time to focus on my clients when I'm at work and then have the balance of the time outside of the office, whether that's two o'clock in the afternoon for a, a school party or eight o'clock at night for a, a, a dance recital, and so that for me currently is the definition of success is that I am able to have this very rewarding, fulfilling career doing things that I love. I'm still able to devote time to my daughters as their mother and to spend time with family and friends as well as time with myself. You know, that has become very, very important in my you know kind of self-care after going through some of some of the events that I have. And f- so for me success is being able to design my time and my life the way I want it. Now that doesn't mean there aren't sacrifices, you know. I have definitely whittled down my my friendship circle. I've I've understood that it's much more about quantity or quality versus quantity of time spent and I just surround myself with the people that I love and I spend my time doing things that I'm passionate about and, and that is success to me.
1: I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Debbie, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast and, and sharing the journey.
2: Uh, thank you so much. I, it's really been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you and I hope that the rest of 2020 goes smoothly.
1: Yes, I think we're, we're all rooting for a, a smooth finish to the year. Absolutely.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com